0: For the last few weeks, we have been slowly working our way through Jesus' sermon on the plain in Luke's gospel. And now as we approach Good Friday and Easter, we're in a season of the church that is called Lent. Lent within the Christian church has traditionally been a time of self-examination, of self- reflection, taking an honest inventory of our hearts and our lives. And to be honest, I can't think of any place in the scriptures that holds a more exacting mirror up to our lives than Jesus' sermon on the plain. And so as I've had the opportunity the last few weeks in this series just to sit and listen and take in the words of the greatest sermon in the history of the world from Jesus... I've been stretched, I've been challenged, it's pressed on me, and I've noticed I'm not alone because it's been awfully quiet in here. (laughs) It's been quiet. And I, I think it's because here's the truth about the Sermon on the Mount or Luke's Sermon on the Plain. There's just no way to take these words seriously without having an honest examination of our own hearts. And as we'll see today, the whole goal of Jesus' sermon on the plain is not just to inform our minds, but to excavate our hearts. Now, what you need straight out of the gate to know is that when Jesus or the biblical writers, they use the word heart. In Hebrew, it's the word leb. In Greek, it's the word cardia. We get the word cardio from that. When they use the word heart, they're not referring, referring to the four-chamber chamber physical organ that's beating in your chest right now. They're referring to the immaterial part of you that's the center of your whole life, your emotions, your thoughts, your will, your dreams, your desires. In the scriptures, all of that part of your whole inner self flows through the heart. Life flows through the heart. Words come out of our heart. Motives, deeds, dreams, desires, the things we love and want, a daydream about, they all flow through the heart. And that's why Jesus, in both Matthew's account or in Luke's account, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, they end in the exact same way with a series of parables that hone in on our hearts. It's like Jesus is conducting a heart exam with you and I as we read these words. Now, if you think about it, when you go to the doctor, every time that you get a checkup or you go in, regardless of your symptoms, they always check your heart, your your heart rate, your blood pressure, right? Every single time that you go to the doctor. They check the condition of your heart. Now, if you were to go, and as the doctor put the cuff on you and and checked your heart rate, if there were any symptoms that seemed abnormal, they would stop everything, regardless of why you went in there, and they would perform a series of more sophisticated tests, like an EKG, perhaps, to find out what's happening beneath the service, Because if your heart stops beating, that's a really bad thing, I've been told. So they're going to check your heart because it's the most important part of you. And in a very real sense, that's exactly what Christ is doing in this famous sermon, the Sermon on the Plain, is he's he's performing a heart exam on us, hooking up a spiritual EKG to our lives, to Our relationships, every aspect of who we are, every word and woe of Jesus' sermon is divinely designed to reveal the condition of our hearts, to show us whether they're healthy or in need of his healing touch. So this morning, friends, if you'll allow him and trust him, I believe that the Lord wants to do a healing work and a revealing work in some hearts here today. So with that, if you'd open up to Luke chapter 6, we're going to see how Jesus wraps up this intense sermon with two parables. We're going to jump in at verse 43 of Luke chapter 6 this morning. his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is God's word. Today, as we come to the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, we're going to be presented with two parables. In one, Jesus is going to walk us through an orchard and show us two fruit trees, and the other, he's going to take us to a construction site and show us two house builders, two building projects. In each of these two parables, as we just saw, Jesus, the master teacher, is going to set two seemingly similar things side by side. Two fruit trees, two houses, two builders. And as we'll see, each of these parable pairs function like a spiritual EKG. They probe deep beneath the surface of our lives, And they reveal two critical things, if you're taking notes this morning, on Jesus' sermon. Here's what it's going to show us. The condition of our hearts and the foundation of our hearts. Jesus is going to reveal the true condition of our hearts, whether our hearts are healthy or sick, good or bad, and in need of a healing touch. But he's also going to to get to the very core foundation of our hearts, what our hearts believe and treasure and trust in as well. Let's start this morning where Jesus began with a parable set in an orchard that is going to reveal something critical about the condition of our hearts. Back in verses 43 and 44, Jesus says, "'For no good tree.'" Bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Now, what's intriguing about the parable that Jesus begins with here is on the surface, it's hard to discern between these two trees. They look very similar at first glance. In fact, it does not say here in the text that there's two trees, a tree with fruit and a tree that's barren and without fruit, that wouldn't take much discernment at all to decide between those two trees, which is good and which is unhealthy and not good. In fact, if you or I were to walk through an orchard in June, there'd be a bunch of trees that would have leaves and fruit on them. And if you and I saw right next to these healthy trees, one with no leaves, and it was shriveled and rotten. Rotten fruit was just littered around the ground. It wouldn't take a rocket scientist to know which tree is healthy and good and which tree is rotten and dead. But notice that's not what Jesus does here in the parable. He puts two trees side by side that are both bearing fruit. In verse 44, Christ tells us for each tree is known by its own fruit. Both are fruit-bearing trees. Both have fruit on the branches. So you have to look closely at the fruit in Christ's parable to understand what's happening on a root level, whether the tree is good and healthy or sick and diseased and bad. You know, what's interesting, the two adjectives that Jesus uses to describe these two trees, the good tree, that produces good fruit, and the bad tree that produces bad fruit. There are very common words in the Greek language. The word good that Jesus used, uses here is the word kalos, and it can mean good or useful, free from defects or beautiful. When you go to Trader Joe's and you get to the avocados, you're looking for kalos avocados. And so this is what I see my wife do. She's a fruit inspector. She takes her fruit very seriously. And so she goes through and she's trying to find the callos fruit, the fruit that's most beautiful and leave all the bad fruit for everyone else. <laughs> and that's what you do too. That's what you do when you're inspecting fruit. Is it good or is it going to be one of those squishy avocados that I open up and it's actually great? Aren't those the worst? Those, those are the worst. So the word that Jesus uses for the other kind of fruit, it's interesting. There's kalos fruit, good fruit, useful, beautiful, delicious. But there's bad fruit, and that's sapros fruit. You don't want sapros fruit. You don't want a sapros avocado. The word sapros in Greek, it literally means decayed or rotten to the core, putrid, or it can even mean poisoned in the Greek language. So according to Jesus, the gravity of this parable, as he's trying to say, is some people's lives produce kalos fruit, good fruit that is nourishing. It's beautiful. It's useful. But other lives produce sapros fruit, fruit that's rotten and can make you sick or other people sick. And Jesus' point is to bring us to a point of self-examination. And what he's saying is, if you really want to know how your heart is behaving, the condition of your heart, all you have to do is take an honest look at the fruit that your life is producing. Now, before we get much further into Jesus' parable, I think it's really Critically important to clear up what Christ is not saying in this fruit parable. You see, I think there's a subtle temptation, especially for those that have grown up around the church or in the church, to mistakenly think that Jesus' parable in the fruit orchard is actually a morality message, it's a morality statement that there's good trees and bad trees, there's good people and there's bad people, so just be a good person. In other words, you can read a passage like this about the two kinds of trees bearing two kinds of fruit and deduce, well, maybe the point of the Christian faith is just to be a good moral person. Inwardly, you might wonder, have I done enough good things to be the good tree in Jesus' parable? Have I done enough good behavior and avoided enough bad behavior to be a good tree or am I a bad tree? Am I a bad tree? However, the problem with reading Jesus' parable this way is that no matter how hard you try to be a good, upstanding, moral person, you'll never really know if you produced enough good fruit to be a good tree, which will inevitably lead that reading of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, of this parable, of any page in the New Testament, that interpretation will lead you down the same poisonous path that the Pharisees and religious leaders subscribe to. That at every turn, Jesus was warning his disciples don't buy into their fruit. Don't live like them. In fact, look at one point in a parallel passage, if you turn to the left to Matthew's gospel, to not the Sermon on the Plain, but the Sermon on the Mount, another sermon where Jesus is going to use this same illustration in Matthew 7, 15. Look at how Jesus warns his disciples about the condition of the religious leaders' hearts. In Matthew seven fifteen, Christ says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gather, gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. There you have it right there. Christ is is getting down to the heart of his message, and what he's doing is he's showing us through this warning here that he has not come to actually give us a list of rules and moral commands that we can obey so that we can be good people. According to Jesus, if you were to read the Sermon on the Mount and deduce that the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to walk away and be a, a better person, a moral good person, that would be like tying bunches of grapes to a thorn bush. That's exactly the illustration that Christ uses. He uses it in Matthew 7. Turn back to Luke 6 and look at Christ's words. Right after talking about a good tree and a bad tree, look at what Christ says. He uses this illustration and he says, For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. What is Christ doing here? You see, the whole crux of the Sermon on the Mount is that Christ did not come to simply offer us a, a list of, of moral rules to obey so that you and I can be nice, fruitful, productive people. Jesus, my friends, did not come to make you nicer. He came to make you new. He didn't come to reform your morality and just make you a better Person, A nicer person. He came to uproot your life and to plant a totally new life within you to regenerate your heart and make you new within. That's Jesus' whole point of the sermon on the plane is that he's come to make us new within and to lead us into an utterly new way of living. I mean, think about it. In order for a thorn bush, to use Jesus' illustration, to bear grapes, it'd need way more than just a little watering or miracle grow, right? It would need an actual miracle to take place. The thorn bush would have to be transformed at a molecular level into a different kind of plant, into something that produced grapes instead of thorns. That's Jesus' point, that he didn't come for good trees, to simply water them and instruct them. He came for bad trees and bad people to uproot them and make them new. This is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of regeneration. Where Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, for instance, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ and become a Christian, God has taken away from your life a heart of stone, and He's given you a new heart, a heart of flesh, as the prophet Jeremiah describes it. Not a perfect heart, but a new heart, a heart that with the help of the Holy Spirit and the scriptures wants to love and obey and honor Jesus. You've been made new. That's what Christ has done in your life. If you've put your trust in him, he's given you a new heart. And here's what I love. The brilliance of Jesus' sermon is he doesn't just tell us that this has happened. He gives us a practical way in our lives to tell if our hearts have been impacted by his regenerating grace in a way that we can live new out of this new heart through the words that we speak. Through the words we speak. So in verse 45... Christ continues and he says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Now in The scriptures in a place like Proverbs, the heart is described as the wellspring or fountain of life. All life flows through the heart, but here our mouth is described as the faucet. So if the heart is the fountain, the mouth is the faucet. And isn't it true that you can actually tell what a person treasures and loves by how they talk? You can tell the condition of a person's heart through their words, what they love and what they actually treasure. Now, for some people on our staff, you get them talking about college basketball and the NCAA playoffs, and out of the abundance of the heart, they start talking because there's a lot of sports-loving people on our staff. I just don't happen to be one of them. I have no desire whatsoever to sit down and watch an NCAA sports game. Put me on a boat or put me with somebody that loves fishing and I can't stop talking about it. But college basketball, not so much. But we have a friendly competition. Each year we have like a bracket competition among our staff. And although I don't care a lick about college basketball, I really like winning things. That's what you need to know. I'm Canadian, and I may look kind inwardly, like board games and things. I'm actually really, really competitive. And so um, I like winning things. And my bracket destroyed Pastor Eric's bracket. <laughs> and he, I think, watched every game, and I didn't know one of the teams. I see like a name like Gonzaga And I'm like, I'm going to vote for them because that just sounds like a fun name. And so I'm that (laughs) clueless when it comes to college sports. So I get way more joy out of beating Pastor Eric's bracket and rubbing it in his face and talking about it with you than I do sitting down watching a single game. Now, why is that? Because I'm a sinner And because my heart doesn't always treasure good things. And Jesus tells me as much right here. He says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Now that's a funny illustration, but can I tell you something? There's actually been some times where that same competitive spirit in my life, has actually caused a lot of damage in relationships where I've seen someone um, be successful and, out of feeling threatened by their success, I've said a disparaging word against a brother or a sister. There's been some evil things that my heart has treasured, and I've hurt and wounded people that I love and care about through my words. For out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus says, the mouth speaks. And whatever you treasure will eventually come out of your speech and your words. Now, what's fascinating and really humbling about the word treasure that Jesus uses in this passage is it's the Greek word theseros. We get the word thesaurus from this term, and it refers to a treasure box or a chest where you would store things of value that you care about. It's Jesus' way of saying, friends, if you really want to know what your heart treasures, pay attention to your words. Take an honest inventory of the way that you talk If our words are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and restraint, what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit, that's the overflow of a new, regenerated heart that loves and treasures Jesus. But when our words are used to gossip, lie, tear down others to make ourselves look better, that's the overflow of an old thorny heart that is treasuring and trusting in something other than Jesus. So in grace, what Christ does is he's going to lead us from this parable in the orchard to a construction site to show us what our hearts trust in and why that matters critically. So look, if you would, at this second parable of the two house builders in verses 46 to 49. Why do you call me then, Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Over spring break, our, our family had the opportunity to spend a, a few days away at the Oregon coast, along with 90% of Oregon. <laughs> there were a lot of people there. And while we were away, just unplugging and, and connecting with each other before just a really, really busy season of just life and ministry and travel for me. Um, I saw a news story and a photo of of a house in Rockaway Beach um, that I wanted to show you a picture of. It's a six-bedroom house right here. And in Rockaway Beach, that house right there where you can see a lot of the foundation is has crumbled down. Apparently, the rising tide and erosion has taken a toll on many of these homes built on that sandy bluff right there to the point where, where I believe all of those homes now, it's not safe to live in them and they have to be torn down. When I saw that that picture, immediately I, I think it gave me a visual of Christ's warning about the two kinds of house builders at this construction site parable. You see, in the end, the storms of life, the wind and the waves and the rain will reveal the foundations that our hearts trust in. This is the point of Jesus' house building parable. Trouble, strife, turmoil, difficulty, hardships will come to all of us. You'll lose your job. Somebody that you love and care about will get sick. And Jesus told us it would be this way. He promised us that in this world you will have trouble, that the rains of life will come, And they'll rain on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. Good people and wicked people will both endure a lot of storms in this life. You can bank on it. The storm will come. Sure, maybe not today or tomorrow, but one day the stream will break and the storms will come. And the only thing left standing in your life will be the things built on a firm foundation. Now, as a pastor, I have the responsibility and sometimes the crushing burden of walking alongside people when they're just in the midst of the storm and the rains and the waves. And this just happened to be one of those weeks it was like storm after storm, just kept coming and impacting people I love. Many of you know Ellie Hotzi, Chris Hotzi, who cooks the meals Sunday night. Here, this week was a rough week. It was a storm week for the Hotzis, As Ellie's been battling cancer, her body is just losing that battle right now. And so they had to go back to the hospital you can pray for Ellie Hotsey. You can pray for Chris Hotsey. Friday morning, as I do every Friday morning, I woke up in a group of men that I've met with that I love. For nine years, we've met together. A friend of mine, Lance, we were opening the scriptures in Matthew's Gospel. Later that day, Lance got a call from his wife, Chloe. And they were on their way to the hospital. Their six month old son, Bo, was just diagnosed with leukemia. They immediately had to put a pick line in Bo and administer chemotherapy. I have a picture of of the family right there. That's little Bo right there. Lance called me, called Pastor Colin in tears, and we're going to be going to the hospital to dedicate his son saying that they have about a four to five-month journey where their son's going to live in the hospital and be connected to a pick line. The storms of life come. Sometimes on really, really good, good people. Good people. And Jesus, in love, he ends his sermon with a warning. He loves us too much not to, to tell us that our foundation matters, what we trust in matters. So often, I think, especially when we experience success, we just build our lives on our health, on our money, on our jobs. You know, in the end, they're all just sandy bluffs on Rockaway Beach, just, just one storm away from just falling down. Jesus warns and says, I don't want that for you. Don't, friends, don't wait for for the storms to put your trust in Jesus Christ. He says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, with a heart that hasn't trusted me, that doesn't want a firm foundation. Don't wait for the storm. Hasn't he proven himself to you enough? All other ground is shifting sand, as the hymn tells us. This morning I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here and and as we we respond in worship this morning, I I feel, and in fact I know, that many of you, you're just right in the midst of a storm. I believe today might be the day for you To put your trust in Christ? Was there a point where you just stopped trusting him? Where maybe you, you shut down, you felt let down, you got hurt on a heart level, and you stopped trusting him. Today's a day, I believe where the Lord wants to meet you, restore that trust and lead you to a rock that will never fail you, that will never allow your life to be ruined by the storms that come. Let's pray together, friends, this morning. Father, I just want to welcome your Holy Spirit, Lord, into this place this morning. And I'm so grateful that you're a gracious God that examines our heart and in love, you reveal Lord, the true condition of our hearts this morning, Lord, how we need your son, Jesus, to be the rock of our salvation, to be the firm ground under our feet, Lord. Lord, I I thank you so much for the work of new life that you have begun in hearts here. If there are any that have not called upon your son's name and trusted him to be their rock, to be their Lord and Savior. I pray by your spirit that this day would be marked as a day of trust, as a day of salvation. Father, we praise you. The lengths that you have gone to love us and care for us, to make us new within, you are a patient, merciful God, and we praise you for that. And all of God's people said, amen, amen.